Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet, an event produced by Athena Advisors and Capital Partners. If people think about, you know, the problem of having Uh, too many electric cars and too many batteries, you know, which obviously will become a negative externality of electrification for cities, we can already start to think, well, you know, on a local level, we could have gravity batteries that basically store uh, the power in lifting a large load into the air. And that's the energy that then, you know, can power a generation machine. And so all these things, we have so many technologies that are coming online that are going to transform the way that we can reconnect with life cycles of nature and not, and localize generation, storage, waste management, etc., etc., etc. So I won't go into living machines, you know, they basically are large recyclers using nature. But I think that this is, for me, what's very fundamental about regenerative design is that it is much more interesting than just trying to super-insulate buildings and, you know, put solar panels on a roof. You know, we're way past this. I'm Rose a French journalist based in Barcelona. And this episode is an interview made in Caplancaya with Thomas Hermacorin. He is a city futurist, regeneration architect, tech angel, cultural pioneer. He's a creative and strategist consultant for built environment clients of all kinds, municipalities, developers, communities, and corporations. Thomas is specializing in participatory regeneration projects across Europe and thought leadership to expand the social impact of architecture. In this episode, Thomas will tell us about his philosophy and why he's in favor of consulting the communities before engaging in a project. Then we'll talk about nature versus technology. Then Thomas will tell us more about his childhood and why he chose this path. What are the latest trends in architecture and communities design right now? The most important aspect for me about uh, trends is that they can be uh, challenged. Obviously, is um, you know what you are seeing currently with sustainability and climate change and the need for us to be more aligned with the planet is a very big part of defining the landscape of the future of city making, and there's some hope in that. Uh, there's obviously issues with it, which is uh, it can be disingenuous, we're ingenuous. We're doing a lot of greenwashing and we're also creating a whole slew of new rules that will quickly make technology sort of be obsolete uh, yeah. when we actually uh, want to implement it. So it's not without, let's say, a certain hesitation. I talk about trends mm -hmm. and the built environment because I find that we need to reshape them according to what's really needed. So... I would say what to me is a defining trend is well-being, mental health, and a connection to self and others. With COVID in particular and the pandemic, it's helped a lot of people see this as you know a critical notion. And we haven't actually designed cities very well or communities very well to cope with this. And uh, this is something that was obviously inherent to indigenous communities that we've lost over time. And modernity has you know accelerated the breakup of community, the breakup of family, the breakup of uh, spirit and mysticism. And so all these trends that we're seeing are the result. I think, of our need to connect. Uh, so just to simplify it, I would say, on the one hand, I'm very hopeful and want to aggressively work towards making the built environment uh, live better with nature. 
so biomimicry and trending towards that sort of notion of learning from nature is essential. And on the other side is to connect more with people and how cities work for people, which has been a big focus of my work. So do you have some examples of this, of um, empowering citizens and what are the concrete tools for that? So there are examples all over the world that are now happening. And what I want to do is to go back to a personal example, which really sort of shaped my way of looking at it. You know, even though I talk mostly and work mostly with, let's say, design and technology, I actually have spent a large part of my professional career working with distressed communities. And um, that's a very interesting place, let's say, to experiment with, you know, tools such as, as participatory tools, because people obviously have a lot of tension between each other. And, uh, you know, it might be, you know, one of those places where you could have the, the highest amount of friction in the system for participation. And so we took on the, the, the job of reviving a walled garden outside of London. And it had been, you know, one of these historic places that was a beautiful mansion. And they were even proud of having ability to grow pineapples in the late 19th century, which was sort of, the, it was like the Ferrari of the time, yeah. you know, because you, you, you would have to grow it on a heap of manure. So you needed to have enough horses inside a greenhouse to be able to have the heat to you know, be able to grow a pineapple. So when you put a pineapple on a table you know, 150 years ago, it would be a sign that you were very wealthy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's just to That's say great. that the sort of environment, you know, is also about converting a place, you know, of heritage, but of, you know, elitist heritage into a communitarian place. And so we, we set up these participatory design exercises where we brought uh, the communities, you know, that um, were neighboring this uh, walled garden to come in there and learn about nature and then we would put them in different rooms and different groups and set them up to um, you know with a diverse group of people and ask them strategic questions that would then be filtered down to you know answers about their dreams and desires for example or their hopes and fears and you know we would map that territory and put it back to them through publications that we would then share with you know the local uh, village but also the municipality and potential funders, etc. And so we did these studies at the time, it was a bit novel, well-being studies that were influenced by my experience in going to Bhutan and working on a documentary about gross national happiness. And, um, you know, effectively, we were trying to understand what was the qualitative experience of people uh, so that we can prompt them to participate in the dreaming together. And once the dreaming together sort of really took on, it started to, you know, erase the differences in the community uh, and a community formed, you know, of interest. And that became the basis for us to actually present work and design together what would be the outcome. So I'm not particularly interested in the design aspect of that project in the walled garden, but I was, is to give a concrete example you know, of these different practices, and most of them are analog. We can do this digitally today, but I still am a big believer that, first of all, you need the connection with people. They're and interesting, in, yeah. And you see, you know, I would say almost 100% of professional design is, you know, very devoid you know, of this connection to people. It's changing, you know, so I'm exaggerating a lot now, and it has really changed in the last 10 years 
when I wrote my book, you know, it was sort of a new science. It's still a bit of a manual for this field. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, it's, um, it's really moving quite fast now. And we understand that if we impose things on people, you know, the ripple effects of that. And for example, with social media, uh, you know, it's a bit like crisis management and reputation management. You know, with communities now we have the same tools yeah. and they can Instagram and they can, you know, use social media to say this is terrible. And, and it, then it adversely affects the sale of a project, for example. So urbanism is and city making and architecture are being influenced by this digital sphere. But that only should manifest the connection to people in a real way. Thomas Amacorin was a co-curator of Harvest 6 edition. He helped to choose the speakers, like Daniel Schmartenberger, interviewed in this podcast about the meta-crisis previously. But Thomas also organized an entire morning at Kaplankaya about regeneration. He had invited three speakers on stage to talk about their project of regenerative models of food, sustainable hotel and a prototype village of the future. All of them are real actors in their field. Their exciting interviews will be released this summer on the Harvest series. But Thomas' introduction speech itself talking about centralizing cities and modern power infrastructures that have resulted in many of us living in a way that is disconnected from the land, with some even seeking to develop utopian intentional communities, aroused great interest from the participants of Harvest, especially a lady working in a law firm and a business owner in New York. With, with Thomas, we're then talking all, um, we had a Q&A, which was very nice, dispersed uh, beneath the trees during lunch, that was lovely. Um, and I was telling him that, you know, we almost need another harvest that looks less like these incredible technological advances and things, and I discovered so many things, and more like, all right, so how are we going to redesign conceptually the humanist part of this, you know, the, the political paradigm, the, the economy of this. So this harvest, most inspiring uh, speaker to me was uh, Thomas. His, uh, uh, let's say, knowledge and understanding about uh, intentional communities uh, seems to be exceptional. His ideas, how to create communities and uh, the values on which they should be created and the importance of different aspects uh, that make a community to be a real community. Uh, it seems uh, very profound and, and, and right. So I think um, that uh, simply the, the the fact of the being, I don't know exactly the words he used, but in general, like the, the being uh, aligned with the nature, being inspired by the nature. I always believed in that, that the nature should be our main source of ideas. Uh, he's an architect, so for many years I live by the rule of Frankly Lloyd Wright. Follow the nature, you will never mistake it. So it seems like they are taking that approach. And then uh, regarding sustainability in terms of energy, waste, and, uh, and especially regarding the, the, the connections between the people. We are um, more and more disconnected from nature, and as we're going to be, it's going to be two-thirds of the world population living in uh, cities in the next uh, future. How can architecture uh, help us reconnect with nature? So this is something I'm very excited about, obviously. And I'm going to just use two words, 
biomimicry and uh, regeneration. There are many ways of defining uh, regenerative design, but one of the key aspects, obviously, is that we're not going in a linear path. Uh, we're you know, starting to learn, like nature, that we live and inscribe ourselves within life cycles and that our materiality is you know, governed by bigger rules than the ones that we have here without going into anything spiritual or subatomic particles. There is something very essential and beautiful to inscribe yourself within the cycles of nature. Uh, so regenerative design to me is, you know, is an essential component to this. And you know, whether we look at the materials of the building that become upcycled, I was involved, for example, in a company called Up in Denmark, it was the first circular construction company in Europe. So we would you know, take timber frames and concrete foundations and bricks from old buildings, repurpose them and put them into new developments and actually improve the environmental quality, lower the cost, and of course, lower the waste and carbon footprint. We really know that we can do this. At scale yeah. is, a, is a complicated task, but it is no longer a technological challenge. You know? So that's an example materials. Another example is uh, obviously regarding energy generation and storage. So if people think about you know, the problem of having too many electric cars and too many batteries, you know, which obviously will become a negative externality of electrification for cities, we can already start to think, well, you know, on a local level, we could have gravity batteries that basically store uh, the power in lifting a large load into the air. And that's the energy that then you know, can power a generation machine. And so all these things, we have so many technologies that are coming online that are going to transform the way that we can reconnect with life cycles of nature and, not, and localize generation, storage, waste management, etc., etc., etc. So I won't go into living machines. You know, they basically are large recyclers using nature. But I think that this is, for me, what's very fundamental about regenerative design is that it is much more interesting than just trying to super insulate buildings and you know, put solar panels on a roof. You know, we're, we're way past this. And then the other side, which is biomimicry. And so I'm involved in a project called Supernature. Which so biomimicry is imitation of uh, nature. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. It's a, well, there's different kinds of biomimicry, but it, it takes the premise and the idea that, uh, you know, the five billion years of evolution of life roughly, you know, have given us uh, quite a complex set of knowledges and we can now tap into them because of computational intelligence and we can, you know, replicate or learn or change. So, you know, there's biomorphic yeah. biomimicry, which is basically trying to replicate the way that the shapes and geometries of nature are operating or, you know, you're, there's biomimicry just in terms of how nature functions like for example how do you store co2 or how do you put it in the ground so we can replicate that and then there's biomimicry that's more in terms of systems and the influence that you have on systems so i think you know what i just want to mention is this project i'm involved in called supernature that a guy called drawer started and we're trying to seek i would say trying to seek that sounds but that's probably the right best way to say it to move out of a Cartesian logic of urban planning where it's, you know, a grid system that had been operating for efficiency into a cellular design approach where the relationship between the different cells of buildings both creates a membrane that's a bit different in terms of relationship between transport nodes and living and, you know, how people live, but also how nature is contained. And actually the buildings become the matrix and substrate for, you know, soil to take root. There's even a lot of technologies right now that are coming out that connect concrete foundations, for example, with mycelium, 
um, that can make it anti-seismic. You know, so I'm very excited, in short, by all these different things that are popping out. The biggest problem, and I know you're probably going to ask me, is like, what is, what is stopping us? And it is really the fact that these technologies need to mature together. We need to deal with you know, lobbies that are making construction industries, for example, uh, a bit like pharma industries, uh, you know, prone to try and you know, put certain things into the built environment that are no longer viable. And a very simple example of this is concrete. You know, represents you know, a very, very big footprint and you know, arguably anywhere between 15 and 20% of the world's carbon footprint has some connection to concrete. And we are not able at this moment to not build in concrete because of urbanistic and planning laws that obligate certain foundations. So if we could demonstrate, for example, that you can change the foundational technology and put this into planning code, this would totally change our relationship to concrete. But obviously, some people don't want to see that happening. You mentioned a uh, human connection, and uh, that's the most important thing. Uh, what do you think about digital twins and the fact that we can try uh, stuff in the digital world that um, could help to solve things? Tremendously excited by the opportunities <laughs> of simulation. One of the biggest issues with experimentation is the cost of failure. You know, fail faster and you'll succeed. Yeah. And so this is, you know, let's say if we can digitize rapid, type, rapid community prototyping uh, in the built environment, you know, not that everything I care about is, you know, the built environment, but it does, you know, affect our carbon footprint, affect our quality of life, affect, you know, our ability to express ourselves, etc. So, you know, I think it's a valuable thing to deal with. And... Um, the externalities of wrong city making is, you know, depression, anxiety, loneliness, death, accidents, you name it. So, I, you know, I want to just restate, you know, my care about this topic is because I see it connected to the tissue of living and how societies operate. And so the built environment, you know, is a costly environment to operate in and doing the wrong thing, you know, is more costly because it's hard infrastructure. And so anything that we can do to improve the fluidity and, I would say, liquefy design, you know, and fluidify it in its relationship to people. So empowering people to participate in design is one of the main tools that Digital Twins will be used for. And this is already happening. Uh, one of the speakers I brought here called Ralph Horat is working on one of such tools to equip both professionals and uh, community members to empower them uh, to be within a metaverse to co-design. So there's that aspect of creating a, an environment where you can experience not just sell in VR. You know, this is like I'm not saying it's useless. I'm just saying that's a very limited use. So I'm really hoping that, you know, on the one hand, you'll have non-professional placemakers participate in what I like to call recoding their lives in the built environment and their communities through these digital twin metaverse uh, experiences. And on the other hand, to really have professionals be able to collaborate much faster, much more efficiently, much more cost-effectively before they actually build something. So I'll just give one example about this. I'm involved in an organization that is setting up an oceans DAO, so a, you know, de decentralized autonomous organization that is targeting to sort of create a layer of digital space that allows for communities to come together and say they want to protect a certain part of the ocean or that they can build something on top of the ocean digitally, so that's the second layer, that would effectively be able to be used as a campaign tool to speak, for example, to a municipality. So let's say you're an endangered island in the Maldives. You know, how do you create the context for you to rise to work on you know, saving that island? 
Right now it has to go through the filter of the municipality, local government. Sometimes it's a national priority issue, so then it can be, you know, trickled up. Um, but overall, you know, being able to design virtual places, I think, is an essential component of uh, developing the knowledge, the participation, and the possibility to do cost-effectively things that we would otherwise not do. What do you think about? Um, so there is some uh, obviously some amazing uh, consequences of technologies. What uh, should be the place of uh, technology in our smart cities, knowing that people are not always comfortable by uh, sharing their own data? So I was expecting that question. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would. <laughs> And are you familiar with the Toronto city that Google tried to do? Have you heard of that? Please, Side please share. Lab. Yeah. Uh, so Sidewalks Lab. Um, was an organization that was set up by Google. They created sort of a, a hyper-digitized uh, city concept with a timber frame architecture uh, so that it would be, you know, uh, almost carbon neutral and, you know, people would share everything and especially their data. And there was a little red book that some people assimilated to the communist red book. And so uh, that red book had some issues with data privacy and it Many people thought it was invasive and the whole city got uh, stopped. It is both an example of the fact that trying to do the right thing has unintended consequences that we yeah. really need to think through. The design ethics around cyber related to built environment is something that we're still fresh on. So this is a very powerful example and reminder that we're not ready for all the things that we want to experiment with and need to think, through, think it through at a faster pace. By the way, that's where digital twins can be useful yeah. as well. The second thing is that, obviously, uh, it is unfortunate that some of these uh, projects that are very ambitious, you know, are not necessarily built. Uh, I'm not defending that Toronto project in general, but I'm defending the fact that a bit like, for example, environmental movements, even though I'm an environmentalist, have stopped lots of great projects happening because, for example, you couldn't build uh, a place and put a windmill because it would kill birds. You know, so I'm not defending... Uh, any party, I'm saying that we really need to think about the scale at which we want to prioritize our efforts. And I think that data privacy, data invasion uh, is something that is going to be only addressed if we create projects faster and build in governance tools that allow us to correct them as they move. So right now we're sort of saying this is good, this is bad, and we decide. And so it's terrible things see the light of day and don't correct. And, you know, great things that might have needed some small corrections don't see the light of day. So I'm hoping that we'll find more middle ground through, you know, design ethics and data ethics that will allow us to experiment faster because we honestly don't know how to do it right and it won't be the same everywhere. And right now I don't have a great smart city example for you okay. uh, that I think you know everyone should follow. Dubai is interesting, Singapore is interesting, Copenhagen is interesting. I can say that these names are places you know, where there's a lot of experimentation that's worthwhile uh, looking at, um, but we're still in the early stages. And I, in general, find smart cities rather dumb because okay. they're not actually... Uh, built upon collective intelligence principles. They're built about connecting devices. Would you dream at night sometimes to uh, build a city from scratch? I think that's that's all I do. <laughs> no. Well, I guess no, no, that's, that's not true. Um, I do I do have other dreams. Uh, but, um, I mean, building cities from scratch, let me make sure I understand your question, first of all. Are you asking me if it's something I would wish I could do? Yes. Yes. Uh, so, yes, I think that my history of work has been impacted by the fact that I chose to not become, let's say, a pure architect, 
a pure technologist, but a hybrid. Let's say this role and title as a futurist is actually a way for me to address that. So instead of saying, you know, I, I operate in design or technology or this or that, I'm trying to bring forward a future that we want to have. And so, of course, I dream to be able to, you know, design things from scratch. And I have to some degree. I've been involved in new neighborhoods. I've been involved in, you know, uh, new cities and uh, new resorts. and new. So building from scratch is not something I've not been involved in. But I, I, I do think that I have a preference for two scenarios. First one is we don't talk very much about the embedded energy of the built environment. So when you create something new, you know, it's not necessarily the most efficient way, even if it's zero carbon. We need to really calculate the embedded energy in what we do. And not only the natural capital energy related, but also the human capital energy and expanding ourselves into the imagination of something that might not be a great place. So I would say that uh, the notion of building something from from scratch is is appealing to me if it has the uh, opportunity to put together all the different parts of the thinking and be very dynamic. So I dislike the word master planning. Yeah. You know, I'm a, a fierce and deliberately fighting against uh, the notion of master pl- planning dominating the landscape of urban planning. I'm interested in micro rapid planning where communities get more involved in what I call recoding. And so if you create the right conditions, and for example, here in Turkey, in Kaplankaya, where we are now, even though this is a tourist development, you could call it, from the outside, it has an opportunity, and I know we'll probably discuss this, uh, to be a lot more. Uh, And I know that Burak and his family, who have uh, resided here now for a number of years, I think over 10 years, even if they bought the land 17 years ago, they have imprinted this place with so much more. They're a beautiful family and they're so generous in the way that they work, yeah. uh, which is unusual. And so I definitely uh, could imagine that here you have an opportunity to create the right conditions for from scratch community design that is not based on one ideology of an intentional community founder or one you know, capital play or one technological play, you know, which are basically many of the pitfalls that we fall into. I dream of that being more true here and in many places in the world where if we do design from scratch, we do it with the right intentionality and we do dynamic planning, dynamic micro planning. On the other side, I mentioned the two things. So one is, you know, from scratch, but my greatest hope is that we manage to experiment very you know, efficiently with these new communities so that we can kind of heal and cure our cities. Because yes, we're going to double probably the built environment in the next 30 years, which is an insane number. But at the same time, I do hope that we will be uh, really rethinking that and retrofit our cities. And in order to do that cost effectively, we still have a lot of work to do. And it's not just putting insulation panels, you know, and, uh, you know, airtight windows and things like that, or, you know, cutting our tap or putting LED light bulbs. All that stuff is good, but this is really not, you know, it's the 1% of the problem. Thomas started his journey to improve cities in 2003, founding Etic Studio a firm working on integrating new material in houses and helping distressed communities to find affordable access to participate in the green economy. He later worked on the first zero-carbon master plan as a consultant to Frank Gehry Architects on Project Zero. Before launching 
Clear Village, a non-profit that helps communities build a better future, developed in many countries later. In 2016, Thomas released his second book, Recorded City, co-creating urban futures, and has been a speaker for TED, the UN General Assembly, advised the World Economic Forum, the Clinton Global Initiatives, and I've been told the Vatican. Could we say he is unstoppable? What put you on the way, on this path of uh, community designing? Probably what has um, made this part of me blossom is a lack of belonging. So I'm Danish and Italian. I grew up in France. My parents were not married. Their families were far away. They both experienced trauma on either side. My mother lost her uh, first husband after a car accident. She was in the hospital with him for weeks. And she had a six-month-old uh, boy who was my brother. Um, so she had experienced trauma. My father lost his brother in a car accident with his wife, and he took care of their his, their two kids. You know, so these things you know, just marked their lives before I came into the world, and they had, they had a lot of that. And so not only did they have a lot of that, but they lived in a country that they didn't know and didn't really belong to, Uh, they had both lived in Switzerland before that uh, because they were working there and they met in Paris in an office and um, you know in a way I, I came into the world you know feeling without attachment to you know our families um, and uh, and they were unrooted and the only thing that they had was love between us so this this bubble that I you know gratefully grew up in you know and I was lucky to have a you know mostly a beautiful childhood you know this bubble kind of was the only way to sort of say well belonging if you have it in there is incredibly powerful and empowering as soon as you step out of that well then everything gets very fragile very quickly and when I saw other people that were living in their communities and their families etc they really thrived in a different way they had more friends they could you know go and see their cousins and this and that I couldn't do all that So I got a bit stuck in this kind of trio as well with my parents. And again, I, I'm not uh, rejecting, you know, any of those things. You know, we all have our, the, the benefits of our education. But I, I think this, this sense that I had to create the belonging as soon as the bubble burst is the thing that made it so that everything that I've done throughout my life is to be, you know, trying to curate my own quality of life. And so I would invite people to have dinner. I loved to cook. I had restaurants. I brought slow food to France. So I had a whole parallel life trying to create belonging. My ex-partner was a musician. We would go around touring in the world. I used to play a lot of music myself. You know, I really believe in food and music as ways to gather. That's why I got into curating events also. And I had this place called the Lime Wharf in London, which was the largest independent cultural center in London for five years. And really, it was about bringing a community together and creating a sense of belonging. I created the first makerspace in the UK of, you know, that had an impact agenda called the Machines Room inside the Lime Wharf. It was the largest fab lab, you know, fabrication laboratory where you learn 3D printing and laser cutting, etc. And we taught, you know, artists and uh, older uh, generation members of the community and people from the Bangladeshi community that were living there and kids uh, how to play with all these new technologies so they could participate in the future but all that was about belonging wow. that's really what my journey has been about 
And I think that that's why participation is so central, why care is so central. So yes, we can talk about the environment and climate change and you know, solving the world's biggest problems. But if they don't start from that place of care and belonging, I don't think they're going to take root. One last question before you go. The harvest of the day. If something easy or simple could be done and would make the world a better place, what would it be for you? Uh, at the scale of an individual or, you know, so... Uh, could Whatever you, ask, you prefer. Something could, easy or simple that could be done and make the world a better place. Could be like a um, habit people would make or anything. Can I say two things? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Freedom. <laughs> Challenge the rules. <laughs> I have to think out of the box. No, that was not very much out of the box. But yes, I mean, the first thing is for me really, um, you know, is to look inside, you know, and remember to look inside, you know, as much as humanly possible. And if, if this becomes almost a curricular obligation, you know, and we don't see schools tell you look inside, they say look outside. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that if we can reframe our education around that somehow, you know, I think anything that we can do that reinforces that statement, because once you love yourself, you can love the world. And once you love the world, you can give. And once you give, the world, you know, rewards you. So I, I think that that's, you know, really so essential. Again, one of the reasons why I really enjoyed coming to Harvest and curated, curating for this session or this, uh, this edition. Um, the other one thing that people really could do Um, but I'm going to point a finger at, um, let's say, um, a category of person. And so I work right now a lot with ultra high net worth individuals in order to, let's say, create, uh, I have a history in branding as well, an identity, a yeah. small company that does that. Mostly we pick the projects that we do uh, related to impact. And so one of the things that we've really noticed, because I'm in all these impact networks, is that there is a major misalignment in most families that have come from wealth or have built wealth quickly and this is true in most geographies uh, between what they invest in in terms of impact or let's call it you know philanthropy even though we need to define that word in many in many different ways uh, so so how they invest and what they who they are and so this mismatch uh, you know to me is a very very big problem and one of the lowest hanging fruits in the world right now with the largest generational wealth transfer in this decade in history and the largest existential risk we've ever faced to date to me is the lowest hanging fruit that i am now concentrating more power on to transform uh, let's say family leaders into planetary stewards so do you have a concrete example of yes. this So when you know a famous philanthropist, for example, um, you know, you may consider someone like, you know, Richard Branson or Bill Gates, etc. And um, without debating the qualities of those humans, they have managed to tell the world through their entrepreneurial success and then their philanthropic uh, success that that's how they, you know, their values are imprinted into the um, philanthropic vehicles they've created. When you look at most families, that is not the case. You know, they are dealing with legacy issues, and so they can't build their legacy meaningfully and align it to their personality. So a concrete example of this is I'm helping a, an organization I can't name to revisit uh, their history and tell their story through a different lens so that they can start to connect the dots with their children and make their children participate in the legacy 
This is before they talk about their actual wealth transfer technique. And it's about identity. And it's once that identity is much clearer and it's a conversation about the identity, then the legacy can flow from there. And if we do this right, you know, just consider this as a number. It's anywhere between uh, 600 and 650 trillion dollars or euros almost that will be, you know, moved from one generation to the next in this decade. It's a large number and that's, it can almost match our capital needs for solving most planetary issues. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode and Thomas Armacora's approach to architecture, his explanation about regenerative architecture, what is biomimicry and the importance of communities for him. If you did, please leave us a good review and follow us on Instagram Harvest Series. All of our podcasts are also filmed, so to tune in to these videos, visit youtube.com slash harvest series. Next episode will be with Manesh Hibar. He is a shaman and will explain us what exactly is a shaman or a medicine man, like he likes to be called. Don't miss the episode. Until next time, 